You know, we live in a uh, culture that is uh, leery, increasingly so, of making commitments. Uh, we're fine to, to place our stake in the ground on certain topics, but, but to make commitments to one another, uh, maybe people who aren't on our team or maybe beginning to learn and kind of figure out who is on our team, if you will. Um, most people ask the question, you know, why get married? Why don't we just live together for a while? Let's test him or her out. Let's take it on a test drive and, and see how this works. Let's learn one another's habits and everything else that that involves. And did you know over the last five decades, and I realize that's 50 years. I'm not saying over the last 18 months. But in the last 50 years, the rate of cohabitation has gone up 900%. And that tells us a lot about uh, what is culturally becoming more and more acceptable over the last several decades. Uh, and then often after living together, uh, half of those couples don't actually get married, even if that was maybe their original intent. They just continue to cohabitate. And, um, you know, why put a ring on it when I can uh, have, um, you know, the, the benefits or the lifestyle of everything that just comes with, with living together? And then if I change my mind, it's just much easier to bail and uh, go in a new direction. Um, in a similar way, some hesitate to join a church maybe because, well, let's just have an honest conversation for a moment, can we? Church life can be difficult. There's a reason God sent his son to save Christians or those who now proclaim to be Christians. Why? Well, because we need saving from our own sinfulness and our own pride and our own rebellion. You put all those people together, saved by a savior, thankful for that, still with a whole lot of our sin that we have to work through together. So it can be challenging and complex. If we commit to, to doing life with others, whether it's immediate family, whether it's in-laws, whether it's church, it's difficult. And so why, why agree to joining a church through membership when I can just kind of come and go as I please, right? Don't like the music anymore? It's okay, I'm not committed. I can just go somewhere else. You know, don't like the tone of the pastor's preaching, uh, assuming it comes from the Bible. Well, I can just change my change my uh, uh, my Sunday morning route and go to another church. I can just pick up and go somewhere else. Get offended on a ministry team that I'm serving on. Well, I, I don't need this translation. I'm better than this, and I don't deserve this. It's a whole other sermon in and of itself. And then I can just go somewhere else when when those kinds of things begin to happen, right? You try to lead a team or a ministry. Maybe nobody's step up, stepping up, and you say, "Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna help lead this team." And then and then often, what's the thanks you get? Well, nobody likes your decisions or how you lead it or you put the team together or what you're trying to do or what the vision is. And it's like, you know, why bother? I'll be honest with you, it's a fair question. Why bother? Actually, I think we would do well to lean into the question a little bit. Why? Why bother? Is there a, a real reason to bother with all of this? Is there a real reason to, to bother with marriage? Committed marriage for life? Yeah, there's a reason there's a reason to bother. Healthy church life is difficult work, and it takes, uh, it takes work, a committed effort, and it's hard. And I'll tell you, it can be, you know, it can be fairly taxing. It can be taxing. But you know what, friends? Uh, in my adult years, I've been a part of four churches, I think, since I was about 20. And I will tell you, and by the way, each of those churches, because I moved to a different state. And I've seen some really difficult things as a, as a layman, 
serving in those churches. And I've seen some really wonderful things. The wonderful things only come after you persist and you remain committed, trusting the Lord through the difficulty. Because otherwise you just go in a place where you just begin to church hop and you're just, you're a consumer. This church is for me. I'm taking in what I can get from it and the rest I'm going to leave behind. And when I don't like it anymore, I'm just going to go somewhere else. But if you say, I'm going to be committed. Now, there, there are prerequisites, right, for deciding what church you're going to commit to, right? And, and this sermon is not entirely about that. So I'm just going to say you want to commit to a church that, that unashamedly proclaims the word of the gospel. You ought to be able to see that the messages being preached are coming out of the pages of Scripture, not someone's own opinion or fun storytelling or anything of that nature. And that, broadly speaking, the church is operating in a biblical manner. As you think about the beauty that comes through the difficulties and and through the trials, it's much like if you look in a a river and you see these beautiful river rocks. That's why people love river rocks, right? They're often, at some point, they become uh, often uh, smoother. I mean, they're not all silky smooth all the way around, but... A rock gets in the river and, it, and the current tosses that rock around. And eventually those rough edges, those, those pointy aspects of those rocks, they get kind of chipped away, right? Don't they? They get chipped away. And, and, and then the consistent current moving over and around that rock over many years begins to shape that rock into a smooth, often quite beautiful stone. I think that's a pretty, uh, a pretty good example or a pretty good way to think of doing life together as a committed body of believers. The beauty comes after some tumbling around, after the current that seems to be uh, maybe, maybe hard to stand in, but consistently moving to shape the roughness off of it off of it as the Lord would be taking a chisel and chiseling more and more of our human desires, our flesh off of us it, to make us into a people. And by that, I mean peoples being formed into a people for the glory of God. That's what helps the world around us stand up and take note of who God is. Right? Our main point for today is that God designed the church to display God's beautiful love to a lost and dying world through meaningful church membership. And that last part's important. God designed the church to display God's beautiful love to a lost and dying world through meaningful church membership. And this morning, we're going to look at three truths to see the reality of that statement. And the first is this, an obedient Christian should commit to meaningful church membership. An obedient obedient Christian should commit to meaningful church membership. Number two is that we are to understand the beautiful, complicated love of God or the beautifully complex love of God. And the third is that we are to give our life to display God's love to the world through the church. Now that might seem redundant to point number one, but we don't just become a member and then get back into the routine of coming on Sunday morning. Uh, We are to be committed people giving our lives to the display of God's love to the world through the church because that's how the Lord has chosen 
to work. So let's, let's look at the first point together. An, an obedient Christian should commit to meaningful church membership. Now, let me just say out of the gates, I don't mean if you find a church that you think may become your church home and two weeks in, three weeks in, you ought to join and become a member right then and there. We actually have a, a fairly extensive membership matters class that we, um, that we lead for the purpose of telling people, hey, we're glad you're here. We're glad you may want to consider being a member of the church. And we want to introduce more about who we are to you. And we want to get to know you better, right? You sort of look at it like the, the, from moving from dating to engagement. We say, this is good. Let's do this together. Let's learn together. Let's grow. Let's make sure that it is the right fit for you so that two weeks after you join, you think, oh, I didn't know that about our church. And then you are looking to find somewhere else, right? We want to help that process be deliberately slow in order to help uh, those that might be considering membership really know us as a church. And then, and then vice versa, as well. But let's just ask a question. Why isn't church membership explicitly stated in the Bible? Well, at a high level, I'm just going to equate it to the, the, the word Trinity. The word Trinity, you'll never find in the Bible. If you open up your Bible app and you use your search feature, you're going to type in the word Trinity. You'll get lots of books, maybe, if you have commentaries or whatnot that talk about the Trinity. But the Trinity is a theological term used to describe a biblical concept of a triune God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Membership is similar to that. We see the word member. Uh, Paul, the apostle, uses lots of imagery actually to describe what the church is. But if you wonder why it's even required um, in the Bible, then um, why don't we find it mentioned more specifically in the New Testament? And my answer is that it's assumed as you read the Bible. It's implied all through the New Testament. But in Old Testament times, it didn't need to be formalized in the way we sort of formalize membership in this way. And I'll say there's freedom for churches in how they go through this process and how they invite people into membership and how they choose to formalize the process. Uh, different churches do it different ways. I had a church that I went to in Kentucky that, that we went to, and, uh, and this was neat. I hadn't seen this before, but every year... Every year they have a, a, a member, uh, like a members meeting, like we're having today after church. But part of their service was uh, just, they did, they worshiped together at the beginning and at the end of the service. And then um, at the end of the service, they just had a membership Re, covenant recommitment or a covenant renewal time together. And they would all just line up and they'd go through and they'd say, yes, I love this church family. I'm still committed to this church family. And they would just all re-sign their church covenant statement together. And I thought, boy, what a beautiful picture to uh, intentionally call people out to saying yes, uh, reminding people that this is important and, and this is necessary and we recommit ourselves to this again. When I perform wedding ceremonies, one, ceremonies, one of the things I do is I'll ask uh, those that are in attendance when we get to um, saying one another's vows. And I'll ask those in attendance and I'll say, you may be here with your spouse. And this is a wonderful time for you to join hands and recommit together in the quietness of your own heart, your commitment to love one another until death do you part. Because even a wedding is a corporate worship event that we are able to participate in, uh, in together. So... But it, back to Old Testament days, right? Or I'm sorry, in the, in, the old, in, in the New Testament church, but a long time ago. Let me say it that way, right? They didn't need to formalize membership the way we do, primarily because if you lived in this church, in this city, you went to this church. Paul writes to the church of Ephesus, not the church on 3rd and Main in Ephesus. So at that time, if you lived in this city, you went to that church. And uh, 
And, and, and for whatever reason today, they're often in larger cities, many, many churches. You might find uh, a dozen or 20 good gospel-centered churches that you might consider attending. And so you identify yourself with that particular body of Christ. We commit to a, a certain particular people, and we submit to a particular group of elders or, or leaders who give an account for your soul. Uh, I want you to listen to this one verse in the book of Hebrews, because I'm just going to be honest with you, we don't like the way the word submission, and there are times when the word submission or those in authority, whether it's a, a husband and wife or whether it's church, church leaders can fall prey to this as well. But it still doesn't change the message of the scriptures in this respect. Obey your leaders and submit to them. I'm just going to let that sit for a minute. Now listen to the reason. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who must give an account. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your soul as those who must give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And while I have no desire to get on a hobby horse today, there are things that your pastors and your elders, uh, we rarely come down and say, you need to do this. But we implore you, things like we want you to be connected in a smaller group of believers so that throughout the week, You've got someone that can pour into you and that you can pour into and invest in another person. And sometimes that, that's met with a, a joyous, yeah, that's great. Let me help me find the right group and let's talk about this. Uh, and sometimes people take that and they go, okay, that, this, is, this is actually wonderful and I need this. I have some circumstances in my life that don't permit it right now, but I hear you, and I want to take this with a kind of a thoughtful, prayerful consideration. And I think uh, as soon as I'm readily able, reasonably able, I, I do want to do that, right? So there's a respectful, I hear you, and I can't do it right now just because of some circumstances. But, you know, I, I do, I, I understand your desire for my soul, and, and I do want to move in that direction. I think that would be good for me. And then at other times, it's sort of just dismissed out of hand, like, I can just take whatever you think, I can do what I want, or I can just ignore what I want. And that third group, I would just try to lovingly challenge some and say, you know, our desire as pastors, elders, is to help everyone grow in their walk with Christ. And I hope you'll see more of that uh, throughout as we continue moving on. But the church is described as having members, right? As, as the body talks, or as the Bible talks about church, the church is made up of members. Pastor and theologian Mark Dever says, combining the collective images of families, parties, and communities with the even more integrated image of an individual body and its various parts, the Bible 
presents the local church as an identifiable unit made up of multiple individuals, yet so highly integrated that they are identifiable as a unit. In other words, when we talk about Oak Grove Church, we don't want people to be seeing Oak Grove Church and talking about necessarily this member or that member or these few members. Not that that doesn't happen occasionally, right? That's people as we get to know each other. But they're talking about the mission and the vision and the effective ministry of Oak Grove Church, which ultimately we'd say, praise God for anything good that comes out of us. We praise God for that. But people see a a common thread, a unity that says we're called to be the body of Christ and to be a display of God's love for his people to the world. And so we ought to be so tightly woven together, even though recognizing that that comes in smaller pockets. And then we gather together here on Sunday mornings and we bring everything together and it overflows in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. But people ought to be able to look at us and say, oh, they are so tightly woven together. What causes that? I mean, they must have to set aside personal agendas. They must have to set aside, you know, freedoms and and some rights or or let me use a better word, preferences in order for that to happen. We say, well, yes, there are times when we do. Because we're not each after our own vision. We're after God's vision to come alongside people, to build one another up. We'll get into more of that as we move throughout our time. Listen to Romans 12 and then 1 Corinthians 12. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as, li- as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among of you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So though we are many, I'm sorry. So, so we, though many are one body of Christ and individually members of it. First Corinthians 12, for just as one, uh, just as the body is one and has many members, so he's drawing a comparison to our, our physical bodies and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ for in one spirit, the Holy spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, whatever our situation in life was, we're all baptized into, into one body and we're all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, well, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. Well, that would not make it any less part of a body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. Well, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which are more presentable parts 
which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, and that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Even before the church was, you know, had gone into the, the formation, the New Testament church, Jesus told his followers to seek out the brother who sinned in Matthew chapter 18. There's a sin struggle going on. They know each other. He's saying, go, go find this brother who sinned, and, and here's how you're to handle this kind of a situation, right? He was presupposing, he knew that he was speaking to the church in a way that foresaw or foreshadowed the, 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 a body being brought together that's so tightly woven together it is seen as one body. So if all of this is true, then uh, everyone who names the name of Jesus ought to commit to your local church through membership, meaningful membership, and consistent ongoing ministry activity. It's not a clubhouse. It's not a golf club. Those who profess Jesus Christ as Savior and, and whose testimony is is, uh, is validated to the best of our ability are card-carrying members of the local church of Jesus Christ. It means we're to give our lives to the display of God's glorious love to a lost world. Now just, let me just get you to pause and kind of soak that in for a minute. If you were to describe the love of God to a friend, how would you describe it? Tell me about this love of God that you give your lives to, that you schedule your lives around, that you, you know, uh, uh, organize your finances and your checkbook around, or prioritize is maybe a better word, right? Help me understand God's love. I mean, they're not, not going to say it with all those follow-up questions, but tell me about God. Okay, now I'm going to put you on the spot. You ready? Kids included on this one. On the count of three, I want everybody in like a few words, which I know that limits us, but that's okay. We'll roll with it. I want you to just say out loud how you would tell somebody about God's love. You ready? I know you're like, whoa, wait, I need more time. You don't have it. <laughs> just kidding. I'm actually not. Here you go. You ready? How would you describe God's love in a, sh in a short sentence? Ready? One, loud enough that I can hear you. One, two, three. <laughs> Good job. I have no idea what you said. I heard a couple things. When we think about the glorious display of God's love, we naturally think of all of the fun and pleasant sort of easy things that work to our favor or immediately work to our advantage, right? We think of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the whole church should say to that, amen, loudly and strongly, right? That the perfect holy God gave his son to come to earth through a virgin birth and to live a perfect life in thought and in deed and to give his life willingly as a ransom paying the penalty that's rightfully Pastor Matt's to pay, right? It's rightfully yours to pay. Jesus paid that penalty for us so that our sins are forgiven and we might be transformed, made new to have a relationship with God our Father through repentance and faith. Now, you're not going to say all that in your first conversation with a friend, 
but you might begin to explore that with them a little at a time. We think of verses like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that kids help me out here, that whoever would believe in him might not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. Yeah, 1 John 4, 10. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation or sacrifice that that, that satisfies God's wrath towards sin uh, for us, right? And of course, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. That's the part we usually talk about. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Have you ever looked at a a painting that required that you just stand and look at this painting in awe? You might stand at this piece of art, whether it's a painting or you drive. I think cities are famous for them, right? You've got these pieces of art and you're like, I have no idea what this thing is. And you drive around it, you look, and then somebody who actually knows something about it can tell you, oh, this is exactly what it is. And you're like, I feel like a fool because I don't see that. But okay, I'll go with you on it. But let's just think about a, a, a painting. And you've got these big paintings and these art galleries, and you're looking at this painting, and you're thinking, oh, that's, that's really beautiful. But you know that it requires a little bit more standing and looking or, or backing up and, and stepping to one side and looking from a different perspective. And as your eyes and your brain begin to uh, formulate what you're seeing on that canvas and your brain begins to identify what it is, then you begin to pick up more of the intricacies in that artwork. And after some more time, you may begin to actually begin to pick up the message that the artist actually intended for you to understand. Similarly, as we step back We initially look at the love of God as we understand it through simple statements like God is love. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever would believe in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Well, as we look a little bit more closely, as we look a little longer, we realize that believe in him, well, it means more than just believing that he existed, but but there's where belief and faith become so interchangeable in the New Testament that they're almost one word. And we begin to pick up those intricacies. And then we move to different aspects of love. And so the second thing that we need to do is we need to understand the beautifully complex love of God. We need to seek to understand the beautifully complex love of God. Now, you might be thinking, I'm not uh, so great at picking those things. I'll just be honest with you. I don't spend a lot of time in art galleries. I mean, I can look and look and go, oh yeah, that's neat. Well, if I just said that, it's neat, and there's an artist within the sound of my voice, I'm offending somebody. Like, I didn't spend 100 hours on that for you to say, that's neat. You're kind of hoping for a little more. D.A. Carson draws out five aspects of the, the way that the Bible speaks of God's love, and I'm just going to list them quickly and, and kind of keep moving. He talks about the peculiar, peculiar love shared between the Divine Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. John 10:30 says I and the Father are one. John 14:31 I do Jesus speaking here. I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise and let us go from here. How often do we live our lives in such a way oh, I'm getting off track already. I can't preach each one of these points, but I want to where we say I do everything that I'm doing so that those may see that I love the Father. 
Wait, what? You didn't argue back in that instance? No, I didn't argue back because I, I do what I do so that those who see me may know that I love the Father. What a wonderful Christian refrain. God's providential love over creation, right? The word love is not used here, but he pronounces everything in creation is good. And then he promises to send rain on the evil and the good, on the just and the unjust. Same thing with the sun. There, there's a, there's a, a, a common grace aspect to God's love. We see, as we've already talked about, God's salvific love, the way that God has displayed his love and worked in such a way to save fallen sinners. He has a, a particular and elective love toward a chosen people. I'll be honest with you, that's one of the, one of the more complex things in Scripture. That's, that's not a simple read once and you, you feel like you understand it, but we can't deny it when the, the black and white words of our text make it really clear. It wasn't because Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8, this won't be on the screen, but it wasn't because you were more in number. He's talking to Israel here. More in number than any of the people the Lord sent. I'm sorry. I need to start that sentence over. It wasn't because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of the peoples. In other words, we often think it's something innate in who we are or something that's really good about me that gave God cause to, to love me. God says, no, 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 it's not because you're great or mighty or strong. Actually, you're, you're, you're weak and you're small. But it's because the Lord loves you and he is keeping an oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The fifth aspect Carson mentions is uh, God's seemingly conditional love toward his people based on obedience. We have to wrestle with that some. It's clear that God has given us his love. He has saved us and he won't remove our salvation from us. And yet there's a call, there's a challenge. There's a, there are conditional statements that we see in the word. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and I abide in his love. So there's an intentionality required of us to work to keep ourselves in the love of God. The main insight here that I want to draw is that the Bible refers to God's love in a variety of ways. And if we fail to, to, to continue to understand the breadth of them, and see them not as these aspects of God that are confusing to me that I'll never understand, but we, we take time and we sit, and we stare, we think, and we pray. And we say, Lord, help me see more of your love. And some of it will come intellectually as we spend time in God's word uh, through knowledge. Some of it will come experientially when we live life and we fail. And we fail. And I'm at the front of the line. And we say again and again, how on earth can God still love me, much less use me? Like, pastor of the church? What? God is so merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. God's love is varied, and we get to spend our lives learning and growing and looking and, and standing in awe of our understanding of God's beautifully complex love, like the artistic brilliance that is meant to be taken in over a long period of time and through repeated gazes. 
Jonathan Lehman asked this question, what is love, in a book he wrote called The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love. It's an interesting title, isn't it? The Surprising Offense of God's Love. He says, what is love? Well, love is an affection for another's good. As something in you attracts me to want your good. And furthermore, the good that I want for you has a fixed and certain content to you. In other words, it doesn't find its end in itself. It's not my hope simply that you have a good day and therefore I want good for you. No, there's a particular fixed end in it. And that is God, God's glory. God is the good that God lovingly wants for others. And he's the good that we should want, lovingly want for others. We, we love our parents, our friends, our spouses, and enemies best when we desire for them to know the glory of God, a desire that's, that's predicated on an even more ultimate desire to see his glory displayed. God's love is God-centered. And our love should be God-centered as well. Thirdly, we, we, we're called to give our life to display God's love to the world through the church. In other words, if, you, if we had two people in two separate rooms and you showed them one particular object, how many of you think that you would get the exact same description to their particular audience? Raise your hands. You think, oh yeah, they'll give the exact same description. Anybody? No, nobody. They're going to give a little bit of a different description. Why? Well, because they're going to, they're going to key in on different aspects of it. They're going to see things uh, a little bit differently than one another. Does it mean that they're wrong in their description of what they're seeing? Well, likely not. We don't have a real object and a real test case, so we don't know. But likely not. But what if you were to bring them both together and you had that same object in the room and you said, okay, person A, go ahead and, and give your description of this object to, to our audience here today. And they would go and they would give that description and everybody in the room would nod and say, yes, I see that. That makes sense to me. And the second person getting ready to give their description would now tailor their description a little bit around what this other individual said and said, let me draw out some additional aspects of that particular object so that we can get a more full picture of what this object is that we're looking at. This is how God designed the church to function together, to, to see all of God's love as God described it and has given it to us. Part of Oak Grove's doctrinal statement reads like this. We believe that local churches are called to be distinct from the world while in it. We're called to grow in Christ's likeness, called to edify, which means to encourage, uh, encourage fellow believers to maturity, called to acclaim to the world God's offer of everlasting love, and I'm sorry, life, and to be a visible representation of the body of Christ in the local community. The Bible gives explicit commands for Christian to follow for healthy church life, which displays the many ways that God loves us. I'm going to go through them quite quickly. And some can even have be broken down into further parts, but I want you to hear the breadth of God's love here. To love one another, to seek peace and unity within their congregation. Now, I want to ask you, where along the line might you put an asterisk and say, oh, I don't, I'm really not, I'm really not pursuing that aspect of knowing God's love or practicing it in my life. To avoid all strife, To care for one another physically and spiritually. To work to edify one another. To bear with one another. 
to pray for one another, to, to keep away from those who would destroy the church, to reject evaluating people by worldly standards. Excuse me, I just burped into the mic. I do not know how to come back from that. To be examples to one another. Just kind of embarrassed right now, to be honest with you. I'm just going to affirm what I said earlier. If God can use me, amen is right. Glory, hallelujah. Okay, you might want to pull your toes back a little here. To, to, to watch over one another and hold one another accountable. Let me just add, that doesn't always require a personal invitation. I am called to hold you accountable. You are called to hold me accountable. The elders are called to hold one another and you accountable. Lastly, we're called to lovingly discipline one another for the other's good, remember, because we're, we want God's best in them, for them for their good and a healthy message of what God's love truly is. We all know that if we saw parents, see other parents never discipline their children, we know that they wouldn't be good faithful parents. We know that they, there's an aspect of their love for their child, namely something like, um, well, I'm gonna hold off there and just say, we know that there is more that is intended in loving a child than simply giving a child what he or she wants all the time. There are times we intentionally withhold in order to teach children that they don't get what they want all the time. I read a book a long time ago and they just said, there's one thing you try to do right in your parent, find something your kids really want and never give it to them. <laughs> wow, that's right. But sometimes we look at God's love for us and we say, wait a minute, why isn't God giving me this? I don't understand why God won't give me this. And we say, wow, God, don't you love me? Why aren't you giving me everything that I want? And then 20 years pass and we say, I think I might actually still want that thing, but now I know why he is demonstrating his love to me by not giving it to me. Can we just be honest and say we'd all rather avoid all this because it's not the fun part of church life. It's hard. It's complex. Sometimes church discipline can happen in small communities. And somebody says, oh, I hear you. Thank you for helping me understand this. And I repent, which is an act of God's mercy and grace in their life. And we celebrate right then and there. You just stop what we're doing and we celebrate. Sometimes God calls us to move forward to a larger group. And sometimes God calls us to come before the church and pray as a church. And, and maybe even as a church, sometimes say, we have to put somebody out from our membership. Whoa, that's not the nice love of God that I have told my friends about. Aren't we to be welcoming and loving? Oh, loving, yes fully loving in a way that images the love of God completely in its full array of color so that the world knows what God's love 
is actually like. Have you ever wondered that the way we practice church may at times send a confusing message to the world we live in? First Corinthians 5 says, tells a story. Paul says, you know, it's, he's writing a letter to this church and he says, it's reported that there's sexual immorality among you. Listen to this next phrase. And it's of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. If I can just add parenthetically, how confusing is that? That we carry a message of the holiness of God, that God would redeem us from our, our trappings and sin, and that we would, uh, we would allow, maybe even celebrate somebody living in, in our midst in a way that we know is not worshipful, but we're too fearful to do something about it. We're too concerned that the world might think we're not nice. You may notice nice is not a word in the list I, of things I gave that God has commanded us to do. Jesus would always approach sinners with love and grace and he would meet them where they are and then he would say, go and sin no more. If a group of sinners is over here in this category and you've got a bunch of circles over here and this is all a group of, of, of I should say, sinners who don't know the Lord Jesus as their savior and then you have a group of sinners over here who happen to know the Lord Jesus as their savior, you have two different groups of people. You might even say there's sort of a, a fence divided here between these two groups of people. This group is not any better than this group. Let's be sure about that. But what happens is when, when God accepts someone, meets someone where they are, and then transfers them from this group here to this group here, Peter calls that out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Well, now the way that God deals with us adds a different layer of love, different complexities of his love toward us that says, no longer do you live like these people over here because I have saved you. I've transformed you. I've given you new want-tos. Say that 10 times. And so now new priorities, new expectations are placed on these individuals that are not placed on individuals. And, and see, we would be wrong to go to these individuals here that have not known the love of God personally, salvifically, and say, well, you need to behave this way so you can be part of our church. No, 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 that's actually getting the cart before the horse. These people, we just want them to know the love of God. You're a sinner? Hey, welcome to the club. Me too. Let me just tell you how Jesus has saved my soul. And then we allow the Lord to work in their heart, and, and God, in a miraculous way, uses our lives, our lips, our testimonies, and transfers them into the kingdom of his beloved son. And then we begin to unfold what Christian life looks like, which is why we must be engaged and involved in one another's lives. So what is this meaningful church membership that we're to give our lives to? Well, it's a formal relationship between a church and a Christian that's characterized by the church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's discipleship. It's not simply, hey, welcome to the club. We want to do our best to, to give a faithful understanding or a confirmation of one's testimony, although we can never really know someone's heart. And then we are to give oversight to their discipleship. It's our responsibility to give an account to God for your soul. Do you know 
the wonderful burden that brings? Do you know how difficult it can be for some to just outrightly just dismiss biblical suggestions for how one might grow in the Lord? I don't want to do that. Oh, I have to stand before God one day. I'm not responsible for you, but I'm, a, I'm responsible. The elders are responsible. Pastors, elders are responsible to do the very best that we can to be faithful, to present you to the Lord, holy and blameless, without spot, undefiled. They promise us to give oversight to their discipleship and the individual, individual submits to, which just means renders yourself to, just says, oh, I hear that. That's good. Yes, I'll follow. Unless it's not biblical submits his or her discipleship to the service and the authority of this body and its leaders. Please, out of all the things that we've said today, don't camp on the fact that there's a pride for authority or there's a desire for authority. If if that's what you hear today, we need to have more conversations because that is, you notice it's at the end. I mean, I mentioned it earlier, but it's not the main thing other than to say that's, that's what we're called to. Why do they keep harping me about getting together with other believers? Because we love you. Because God loves you, and that's how he designed the body of Christ to function well. And because God has called you to one day be that for another. Whatever your giftings are and in whatever level God has gifted you in those ways, God wants to take how he has called and equipped one believer to pour that into the life of another believer so that they might one day pour that into another life of a believer who might then do the same. The church should not remain long with a group of individuals pouring into the lives of others and then remain static. Because then one group is not doing what God's called them to. There's a beautiful, mysterious wonder in how the Lord brings that to actually happen in a healthy way that bears good fruit, long fruit, lasting fruit. It's not primarily event-driven. It happens through process of investing your life in the life of another with God's word in the gospel in such a way that they will hear, be transformed, continue to grow and mature, and then be willing, not just willing, have a conviction to do so in the lives of others. So since God has designed the church to display his beautiful love to a lost and dying world through meaningful church membership, we embrace that a holy, I mean, an obedient Christian really should, again, in the right timing, commit to meaningful membership in a church that goes beyond just saying, I'm a member, but I'm a member who's committed. Not just to coming on Sundays, I'm a member who's committed to doing the work of ministry in the lives of others who seeks to understand the beautifully complex love of God and gives their lives to display God's love to the world, understanding that it happens primarily in the context of the local church. Oak Grove Church, will we make that our aim? Will you pursue that? Will you join us in pursuing that with all that you have? According to the giftings and the passions that God has given you, united under a strong, intentional lifelong pursuit to reach and teach and live out what it means to be wholehearted followers of Christ. 
Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for who you are and all that you have given us to do. And we ask you, Lord, to bless our efforts so long as they are according to how your word has given us to live and love and lead as we lean into one another's lives, sometimes uncomfortably, because this life is never about our comfort, but about your glory. But we need to do so dependently on the Holy Spirit's work in us with trust in one another and with an unwavering commitment to know each other, to love each other, to serve each other, and to call people along this path. And through that, we pray that you would be glorified because none of this will happen by mere human effort. It requires the Spirit. So we pray for your help in that. In Jesus' name, amen.